Hello and welcome to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and really pleased to be back podcasting again after the summer break. I'm joined today to talk about the many, many challenges facing our new Prime Minister by Ben Zaranko and Zhao Wei Zhu, two senior economists here at the IFS. Uh, Zhao Wei is an expert in everything labour market and inequality, whilst Ben knows pretty much everything there is to know about health economics and the public finances and public spending. So over the next half hour or so, we're certainly going to be discussing energy bills uh, and inflation. We're going to be looking at the challenges uh, on the public finances and spending on public services. We all know what's happening in the health service and elsewhere at the moment. But we'll also be looking at challenges facing the new prime minister, one who wants growth, uh, but in a world in which we've got an incredibly tight labour market, what we might do, what she might do to improve productivity and where things like 30 billion odd worth of tax cuts might or might not fit into um, all of those uh, all of those problems. So let's start at the beginning though. Of course the first thing uh, that Liz Truss is going to face is this huge increase in energy bills um, rising uh, next month from just under £2,000 for an average household to about £3,500 a year for an average household, expected to go up to £5,000 in January. And remember, this is all up from not much more than £1,000 a year uh, just 12 months ago. We had then-Chancellor Rishi Sunak come up with a £30 billion package of measures, uh, increases in spending and the national insurance cut uh, through to May. But that no longer looks anywhere near sufficient to deal with the scale of the problem uh, that we're facing. And it looks like what we're going to end up with is a holding down of energy bills, possibly roughly at their current level of about £2,000 for the average household at a cost over a couple of years, at a cost we can't know because we don't know what the costs of gas are going to be, but probably in the region of £100 billion over the next year or two, which is a staggering amount of money, a lot more even than we spent on the furlough scheme uh, during COVID. Uh, So Ben, perhaps you could just say something about why you think we're looking at such an extraordinary intervention in the market as to uh, keep prices down rather than more of what we had before, £400 off everyone's energy bills, £300 for all Pensioners, six hundred and fifty pounds for everyone on means-tested benefits. That was that felt three or four months ago like the natural response to an increase in the cost of living, but it no longer does. I think it's because the scale of the problem has got even worse, and it's now on such a monumental level that the previous sort of targeted approach where you had money specifically earmarked for recipients of working age benefits, for example, and those who were just a little bit richer, perhaps getting much less. Given the scale of the rise in energy bills now, the problem just extends much further up the income distribution to a larger number of houses, households, I should say. And if you are just to target at specific groups, there are going to be some people who fall through the gaps and do perhaps live in a large house with lots of children and with not much insulation, who are really going to be feeling the pain. And that targeted approach wouldn't do much for them, which comes back to the problem of this limited database. In fact, we just don't know 
who can afford to meet this, this challenge and who can't. And so we can't specifically target support and those who absolutely need it, leading to this blunter, much wider spread approach of just perhaps just freezing bills, which means that everybody gets support, including some who don't need it, but it means that people don't fall through the gaps in the same way. And that, that's, that trade-off is one that the government is seemingly now willing to make. I don't know if you agree with that, Paul. I broadly do. I mean, I, I mean, as I've been saying, I think it's a dreadful policy, but a dreadful policy we may have no choice but to implement. And I, I call it dreadful because it's incredibly poorly targeted. A lot of money will effectively be paid to people like me who can perfectly well afford to pay a uh, higher energy bill. But probably more fundamentally, uh, it will mean that there's a much reduced price signal. Um, people will presumably uh, use more than they would otherwise have done, including people relatively well off who could have cut back um, a bit. And it must increase at least the danger uh, that will end up being rationed by quantity rather than price. In other words, we may have blackouts or uh, periods when we can't use uh, the energy. Um, but this is, uh, Xiaowei, of course, part of a much wider uh, cost of living uh, crisis, inflation uh, heading up towards 13%, according to the Bank of England, possibly rather more. So, so that's what's happening to prices. But what's happening to incomes? Are incomes keeping up with those uh, big increases in prices? No, incomes aren't keeping up. Um, so we have seen high nominal wage growth by pre-pandemic standards. However, those wage um, increases have not kept up with the um, 10, 13% inflation that we're facing. Um, wage growth has been has differed across the distribution. Uh, and we've actually seen a higher wage growth at the top of the distribution than at the bottom, which is likely to reflect the fact that, you know, it's it's those higher wage, higher skilled people who have the bargaining power to press for wage increases that match inflation. Now, for people who are not in work, of course, um, living standards have not been keeping up with inflation either. And that's because benefits rise by a lagged measure of inflation. So benefits in April went up with the measure of inflation last September, which was, of course, much lower than inflation in April, which is, again, much lower than inflation today. And that's, uh, in a surprising way, perhaps, that uh, picture that you're describing distributionally is different to what we've seen for at least the last 10, or indeed 15 years, in that at the moment we're seeing the highest earners doing best and actually a widening in the income distribution, which we really haven't seen for, uh, for quite some time. It's really only the top earners who are keeping up with inflation. Everyone else is falling behind. What I think is really worrying politically as well as economically is that the uh, that earnings have still barely uh, returned to their pre-financial crisis level. So this isn't a drop in living standards after what we saw in the 1990s and the 2000s and indeed the 1980s of uh, a period of increased living standards and then dropping. This is a period of complete stagnation uh, and then dropping. Exactly. So we're we're approaching this crisis um, after a decade of stagnation. And so lots of households are in a poor position to, to bear the shock to begin with. Um, on the distributional consequences, it's also worth noting that not only are the poorest households facing the smallest increase in incomes, they're also facing the highest rates of inflation. And that's because the inflation we're facing is driven by energy costs and also food prices. And these are things that poorer households spend a larger share of their incomes on. So we know that overall inflation is projected to hit 13% in October. But actually, we think that the poorest fifth of households are going to face an inflation rate of 18% compared to 11% for the richest fifth. 
that's a really important piece of context here for the new Prime Minister. Of course, she'll be dealing with the immediate consequences, but those immediate consequences are in the context of a decade and more of very poor growth, and that's going to make uh, the next year or two even more difficult for households to cope with. But Ben, it's also going to make it more difficult for public services to cope with. Uh, Public services are clearly going to have to cope with increased energy bills, uh, but also they're going to need to respond to this higher level of inflation in terms of what they pay the teachers and nurses and civil servants and so on. Absolutely. Just as households are squeezed by higher food prices, higher energy prices, higher fuel prices, so too are our schools, our hospitals, our prisons and so on. It's fair to say, I think, that the rate of inflation facing a hospital is likely to be lower than that facing a household, um, partly because uh, energy, which is the, you know what's really driving inflation, represents a much smaller share of hospitals' budgets than it does for households. But what really stands public services apart from households is that whereas the public sector pay bill is about a third of all uh, spending on public services, it obviously doesn't feature in a household's budget. And what's happening to the pay bill is that it's going up by a lot less than inflation. We've had pay announcements so far over the summer in the region of 4 or 5% for most public sector workers. That's considerably below inflation, which is already at 10% and projected to go higher. But importantly, that pay award of 4 or 5% is above what was budgeted for when public services had their spending plan set out last year. And so they're having to meet these additional costs of paying their workers more, and they're not getting any extra cash from the Treasury, which is meaning they're having to squeeze other things. You see headlines sometimes of schools cutting back on how many teaching assistants they have or not buying new textbooks. Maybe it's you know a hospital uh, perhaps you know not being able to set up the new diagnostic hub they were hoping to because their pay bill is simply rising too fast. That is forcing difficult decisions for public services. One of the key choices for the new Chancellor this autumn is whether they want to provide any more money to public services to, to lessen the difficulties they're facing, to take the edge off that trade-off. But that would, of course, mean spending more than they otherwise would. And I suspect we haven't seen the last word on public sector pay either. You've talked about 4 or 5% pay increases being more than was budgeted for. But of course, that's in the context of inflation at 10% and rising, as you say. So that is another 5% plus real pay cut for teachers, nurses, and so on. And they've not exactly been doing well over the last decade either. Absolutely not. So one of the reasons why we're facing the possibility of widespread strike action across the public sector and beyond is that lots of these workers who are now being asked to accept a, let's say, 5% real terms pay cut, lots of them are earning less than they did a decade ago, particularly less than someone doing their job did a decade ago. So experienced teachers have already seen real terms pay cuts of 8 to 9% even before this year. Nurses in the region of about 8% on average in England. Um, doctors, consultants have seen their pay fall by more than 10%, like 12 or 13%. So another 5% cut on top of that, that hits the living standards of these people and ultimately could threaten the government's ability to attract, retain, motivate, the skilled public sector workers it needs to operate public services and deliver on things like clearing the NHS backlog, levelling up primary education, fixing social care. All those things are going to be harder if you can't recruit the people you need to actually achieve those things. So my guess is that um, we're going to have to see bigger pay rises, if not this year, 
then next year, uh, it seems to me at least implausible that we're going to be cutting another 5 or 10% off the real salaries of all of these groups. And a lot of them, for reasons that are entirely understandable, are clearly considering strike action. So we're looking at potentially a significantly higher pay bill. Um, we're looking at, as we know, the pressures in uh, on NHS waiting lists and ambulances and so on. Uh, we're looking at the still backlogs in the justice system, problems catching up with COVID in the education system. You might not want to put a number to this, Ben, but I would be surprised if we get away with, or the new chancellor gets away with, less than another £30 billion on public service spending in the next couple of years. I think you get away with less. I think to broadly compensate departments for the higher inflation they're facing, including the cost of higher than expected pay awards, you're perhaps looking at maybe in the 20 billion mark next for next year and beyond. That's a permanent spending increase. Now, that figure could end up being higher, depending on what happens to inflation and energy bills and pay awards and so on. But it's it, 30 billion is complete within the realms of possibility, particularly if you wanted to stick to all of the government's objectives on public services. It's possible that the new prime minister and government will roll back from some of those, perhaps be less emphasis on the levelling up agenda, for example. Maybe they're willing to accept a longer timetable for clearing the NHS backlog. And pairing back those public service objectives is one way they could ask the UK to deal with being a poorer country, which is what we are in the process of becoming. And so it's possible that you can, you know, if you want to achieve less with public services, you can spend less on them. That is one possibility for the new government. Uh, I'm going to put my. I'm going to bet your fiver, Ben, that in 2024-25, spending will be at least 30 billion pounds more on public services than currently planned. So we'll come back to this podcast in a couple of years and see whether uh, and see whether that happens. Not least because uh, there's going to be an election uh, in 2024. Is that five pounds in today's terms? Or? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> Well, let's uh, I'll take let, you up on that. Let's take let's take a fiver in 2024. <laughs> um, uh, so, Xiaowei, um, uh, Ben has talked about some of the issues in the public sector um, labour market, uh, and uh, pay has fallen pretty you know, precipitously, really, over a decade uh, in the public sector, and is falling again. And the private sector of things haven't been quite so bad, but they've still been pretty bad. Uh, but we're facing a slightly different um, issue in both public and private sectors at the moment, which is there just seems to be a bit of a lack of workers around. Yeah, so the labour market is extremely tight at the moment by historical standards. Basically, there's been an exodus of workers over the pandemic. First, um, because of older people leaving the labour market, many choosing to retire early. And second, because of EU workers leaving over the course of the pandemic and then not returning back, presumably because of Brexit. So we have lots of sectors that are very dependent on EU migrants, um, things like hospitality, for example, that are dependent on a constant inflow of EU migrants. Um, but we see that the people who left over the pandemic have not been replaced by new waves. And as a result, the labour force is just much smaller than it was before the pandemic added to that um, a quick recovery in labour demand, what we're seeing is an incredibly tight labour market. And that creates all sorts of challenges because we've got high inflation, we've got the Bank of England projecting a recession, or at least zero or slightly negative growth over the next year, year and a half, and yet we've got this extraordinarily tight-looking labour market. Now, into that mix, uh, the, it appears that the government wants to pour 
a very large amount of money, um, understandably, to support people's uh, living standards through um, uh, through supporting energy bills, but also uh, big tax cuts relative to plans and, uh, as we've just discussed, almost certainly more money going into public services. Exactly. So it's difficult to see how that would not be inflationary. As Ben said, the UK is simply a poorer country as a result of the energy shock. The UK is an energy importer, so therefore a rise in energy prices means that we're all poorer um, in the medium term. So it's not possible for the government to simply compensate everyone for the loss um, in the form of, of a price cap. I think, you know, unless there's tax rises to offset um, some of this, there will be more inflationary pressure, which would then just put pressure on the Bank of England to, to raise interest rates in response. It's a really difficult economic situation. I mean, it genuinely isn't something that we've faced since the 1970s, a period where you've got potential recession and quickly rising prices. We've had some periods of, uh, we've had some difficult periods since then, but not periods when those two things have been going hand in hand. Now, the Prime Minister's response to this, and it's uh, it's a traditional one from all uh, Prime Ministers and Chancellors when they take office, is to say, we will grow our way um, out of these problems. And indeed, growth would um, solve you know, most of the problems that we face from uh, an economic uh, point of view. And lack of growth, certainly lack of growth per capita, has been the fundamental issue that we've suffered from from the last decade. So um, any thoughts about how we might go away, go about getting a bit of growth, shall we? Well, I think absolutely we want more growth. I mean, everyone wants more growth. But yeah, as you say, the question is how we get about we go about getting more growth. And so far, you know, one of the, the main things that have been proposed is cutting NICs, um, which, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that had some small labour supply response. But I really don't think that that can be the main policy to get growth going in the economy again. We know that the labour market is tight at the moment. We're at historically very high employment rates. There's really not that much scope to cut taxes and therefore pull more people into the labour market, I think. And so, you know, if you can't, get growth by increasing the number of people working, then you have to increase productivity. And it's really unclear how cutting NICs would would solve the productivity puzzle in the UK. Um, we know that productivity in the UK has been sluggish for a long time now. Um, you know, we've had this, this period of stagnation since the 2008 recession. And that's really the underlying cause of a lot of problems in the UK, like the lack of living standards growth. And that absolutely is the fundamental issue. We've not had uh, productivity growth. If you don't have productivity growth, you don't have uh, economic growth. You don't have increases in people's wages and standard of living. And I really hope the new chancellor, the new prime minister, has a, a good plan uh, for growth, which goes well beyond tax cuts. Tax cuts, generally speaking, are better than tax increases. Uh, we all, none of us particularly likes paying tax. But uh, as you say, uh, tax cuts can be helpful if they increase labour supply. Well, labor supp we're already you know, struggling with a very, uh, very tight uh, labour market. Um, and they do risk at least uh, somewhat uh, increased inflation and therefore a response from the Bank of England. If we're really looking at growth, uh, we need to be looking right across the waterfront. We need to be looking at the planning regime, which, of course, the government has backed down from reforming for political reasons. We need to look at tax reform, something that's always very difficult. We need to look at 
doing something much more uh, serious with our education system. And don't forget that spending per pupil on education is no higher today than it was 12 or 13 years ago. Quite astonishing uh, when you compare that, for example, with the something like 40% increase in spending on health over that period. We had a long period of reduced spending on infrastructure investment, and that, of course, is going to be uh, in the long run problematic uh, for uh, for growth. There are a whole series of, uh, and, and I mean, let's be uh, honest about this, Brexit uh, won't be helping uh, growth either. So there's a whole series of things that for a decade and more, governments have failed to do to uh, move us forward to a higher growth um, economy. And let's hope this government does something to change that, but it's certainly not going to be straightforward. I think we should also remember that Xiaowei talked about the proposed cut to national insurance, which I think it's fair to say isn't an especially growth-friendly tax cut, but they've also promised not to increase the uh, rate of corporation tax, uh, which was currently in legislation, scheduled to go from 19 to 25%. Cancelling that rate rise is, a, I think it's fair, a much more growth-friendly tax policy than the NICS change. So I think that is perhaps indicative of maybe where some of the focus will be. I think the big question here is whether how much you can really move the dial with relatively small tax changes around the edge. And given that the, the UK's rate of growth comes from you know, accumulated stock of machinery, buildings, skills, human capital, intangible capital, you know, annual change in one particular tax is unlikely to really shift that. If you're more optimistic, you might say, or oh, we've been falling behind not just countries in Europe, but countries further afield like America or even South Korea and say maybe there's scope for us to do more catch up if we could just fix whatever it is you think is holding us back. But I think that the real question is whether you can really achieve a big change in the UK's trend growth rate, particularly in the short term, and whether you should be underpinning your public finance plans based on such a hope and such an assumption, which may not turn out to be true. And it's always risky to assume uh, growth when it may not turn up. I think one of the things that is really difficult for politicians and in terms of the political cycle is that it is genuinely possible uh, for governments to affect our growth and our living standards over a long period of time. But it really does take a long period of time. The impact of the lack of investment in the early 2010s is being felt now in terms of our living standards. The impact of a very poor planning policies for decades is being felt now in terms of our housing costs uh, and our living standards. The impact of failing uh, to get our education system right is being felt now. But if you changed all of those tomorrow, it will be at least a decade before we really began to feel the impacts. And things that really can make a difference tomorrow are probably not sustainable because they mean uh, pushing money into the economy, making us feel better off a bit of a sugar rush in the short run, uh, but uh, but a hangover um, in the in the longer run. So we really do need to look for long-term growth strategies, not things that are just going to be uh, supporting us over the next year or two. Politicians, of course, want to be going to the electorate at a point when things are doing uh, are doing particularly well. Um, we probably need to start to bring this to um, an end. One thing, Ben, I wanted to talk about was slightly more broadly um, issues around some of the risks to the public finances. Um, we're seeing big increases um, in spending on in, on debt interest, for example. Um, now, a lot of that's driven by higher inflation. But one of the things that's been noticeable in recent months has been an increase in the 
uh, underlying yield on debt in on on government debt. So we we used to be. I mean, a year or two ago, we used to be able to borrow virtually for three for free. Um, we're now paying something like three percent um, on uh, on non-indexed, non-inflation-linked uh, debt. How, how big an issue do you think um, the the big, the huge COVID debt uh, that we've inherited is going to be, and how big a problem is going to be paying back the very large amounts of additional debt we are inevitably going to be taking on over the next year or two, likely to be. I think it's difficult to say with any degree of certainty, given how uncertain um, the economic outlook is. But I think it's likely to be a slow burn. So, yes, we're seeing um, an increase in the cost of borrowing for government. We're seeing an increase in gilt yields. That takes a while to feed through to debt servicing costs because of the relatively long maturity of UK government debt. Though we should also remember as well that currently debt servicing costs are extremely low by historic standards, even despite the big increase in the level of debt the fall in interest rates has meant that servicing that debt has actually been extraordinarily cheap. The challenge is that that may be about to change. We might be heading into a world where interest rates start to return to something more like what we used to think of as normal. And the incoming government seems to have decided that it, there's one thing to borrow for a temporary support package for households to get through a very difficult winter. It's another thing to decide you're willing to structurally, permanently borrow more to, for instance, cut corporation tax, cut national insurance and increase defence spending to 3% of GDP. If you do all those things and decide you're going to borrow much more, precisely at the moment when it's become more expensive to do so, that does potentially spell you know, higher spending on debt interest going forwards we would be left more exposed to changes in interest rates, which may be on the horizon, particularly so given the impact that quantitative easing has on the public finances. And so you might be able to square this circle by achieving higher growth rates and making all these problems go away. But if you don't, I think you are taking a bit of a gamble with the public finances. Yeah, one of the things that uh, we don't know what's going to happen to it, but I saw a chart uh, just yesterday of the sterling um, dollar, sterling euro exchange rate it it's, goes down over time, but it's been going down quite a lot um, uh, more recently. And I think one of the lessons for all of this is that political instability um, breeds economic um, poor performance. And one of the things I think we need from our government, of whichever flavour, is a degree of policy and political stability and certainty uh, around our institutions. If you lose that, you also... Uh, lose the capacity to borrow on the international markets at relatively low rates. I think political stability is also really important for encouraging the sort of investment we need to drive up productivity. So we know that the UK lags other countries like France, Germany, the US in terms of levels of R&D spending. We know that business investment lags other countries. But that gap has especially widened after the Brexit referendum, probably as a result of the uncertainty that created now, we know that we've had a, period, a long period of political instability in the UK now. Um, Liz Truss will be the third prime minister since uh, 2016. And there's been a lot of stop starts on industrial strategy and other you know, policy priorities. So I think having that um, long term outlook and that period of political stability will be really important to, to boost productivity as well. Yeah, I think you've lost count, Zhao Wei. She'll be the fourth prime minister since 2016. <laughs> I do. <laughs> on, on that point about the, the sterling uh, dollar exchange rate, what's particularly striking about the last month is that it's happened at the same time as the return, like gilt yields have been going up. 
And in quote-unquote normal times, what you might expect is if UK yields are rising faster than other countries, which is what's happening, you might expect more money to flow into the UK and if anything, the pound to strengthen. The fact we've seen the opposite, it does raise at least questions of whether markets are taking fright at some aspect of the UK's economic outlook. And I think that just as important, as you say, as whatever policy reforms you're doing in the background is some degree of stability, confidence in institutions, and making sure that the UK is an attractive place uh, to invest and to, you know, and to live. Uh, and I think that's something that we really would benefit from. Absolutely. Well, perhaps we should leave it at that um, point. And I think what we've identified here is that, that Liz Trust faces two sorts of problems, really. One is to stabilise things in the short run. There are a lot of big short-run problems that we as a country are facing, of which obviously the biggest and most urgent is dealing with the cost of living crisis and the uh, spike in energy prices. Uh, but probably even more important for the long term is that there are a whole series of long underlying long-term challenges that need to be addressed uh, about the uh, productivity of the economy, about the stability of our finances and, to some extent, uh, resulting from uh, our political uh, system, uh, that we need to bolster uh, the institutions and we need to think very hard about what we're doing, about planning, competition, education, infrastructure investment, and so on, uh, and so on. And so I think what we're looking for um, over the next few months is that combination of stabilising things in the short run and putting in place a, a, a feasible and credible strategy uh, for, uh, for the longer run. So um, we will leave it there and leave it to uh, the new Prime Minister and her new Chancellor to sort all of that out as we get on with the uh, rest of our lives. Thanks ever so much for joining us. We're going to continue to provide fresh analysis of the challenges facing the UK economy and the new government as we head into the autumn. To see all of our analysis, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support our work, please consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for as little as £5 a month. Each donation helps us to respond to policy announcements as they happen. You can find out more about the link in the episode description. See you next time.